Ladies and gentlemen, Tommy Byrne. And Sean Cullen. We've met him already. Right, well, uh, welcome on stage to both of you. I think the, uh, the audience reaction, Sean, tells us what we need to know. It's uh, People have enjoyed it, even though this was a special two-DVD edition, which wasn't quite anticipated. But, um, Tommy, can I just ask you, going through something like this, the fact you're here, I mean, I presume means you're, you're quite happy with the production. But is something like this, is it therapy or torture? It's tor a torture. Um, I'm actually not happy with it, but I have to be here because I'm getting paid. <laughs> no, that's paid. no. You were getting paid? <laughs> no, that's a, that's a joke. I'm, actually, none of us are getting paid yet. <coughs> it's, uh, well, I, I obviously don't watch it anymore. Uh, certainly the last 20 minutes, I think, are very hard to watch. So, um, and plus, I've seen it five times in front of an audience. Um, does anybody know what it's like to watch yourself in on a big screen, it's it's kind of scary. I didn't know this was coming. Um, where I just thought it was going to be a documentary. Um, but you know, Sean did a good job, and it's it's certainly it's hard to watch, but it's it's true. And as you watch it, difficult though it might be, is there a moment when you any particular moment when you think, "Geez, I just wish I there's one thing I did differently." No. It's a fair answer. I mean, I've, I've been asked the same question, what's your regrets? You know, yes, maybe I wouldn't have told Jeremy years ago himself. Um, there's a couple of small little things. Joe is a really nice man. Um, does he think that about you? Yes, I think he does. But remember, I just found it, a lot of stuff you find out years later, you know, I wrote the book and I found out the Theodore team didn't even want me driving for them. Uh, that was Sidney Taylor wanted me driving, and uh, and uh, they fired Jan Lammers for me. And Julia Randles and Joe Ramirez were quite happy with, with, with uh, Jan. Great driver. And um, of course, I didn't find that until 20 years later. If, you, if I had known that at the time, it would have made a lot more sense what was going on. No, how come they wouldn't listen to me? But watching it, how would I change? Yeah, of course, there's some stuff that I would, you know, we did 70 hours of filming, and um, there's a lot of stuff I wouldn't want on there, but it is what it is. And as far as changing my regrets, I, I keep racking my brains. And probably, probably when I got to Formula One with the Theodore, I shouldn't have been drinking in the Caesar's Palace, and I should have matted off so much to Julian Randles and Joe that night because I had the McLaren test coming up, and it probably hurt me with the McLaren test. So that's probably what I would 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 not do. That um, it surprised me to. I think I was probably working for Motoring News at the time. It surprised me that to, to, to discover that we didn't give it that much coverage because I remember colleagues being at the test and saying what an impressive job you'd done that day. But I mean, what what are what are your outstanding memories of that day? I mean, you said you were nervous before you got in the car, but once 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 it was all up and running, I presume it all just came very naturally to you. I was only nervous because I already told you know, the Theodore people how fast I was going to be. Come watch me. You'll see. Because they were telling me I couldn't drive. Uh, Julia Randles told me that if Kiki Roseberg was in my car, he'd be in pole position. 
and I was 23 years of age, and I just couldn't handle it. And uh, um, so I said, come watch me, I'll show you, come watch me. And of course I said that probably too much. <laughs> the only reason I was nervous, because I listened to, uh, um, who was in the car before me? Um, no. Putin? <laughs> Putin. I listened to him talking to the mechanics, and he was saying the car was understeering really bad. And I thought, I hope I can do what I said. I started getting nervous then. And then once I got in the car and did a couple of laps, I just, I braked a little earlier, turned a little earlier, and but it got on the gas, and there was no of us here whatsoever. What a, just a fantastic car. I mean, unreal how good the car was. So, yeah, I wasn't nervous anymore after that. Sean, I mean, it's, it's nice that the footage exists of, there's a glimpse of Tommy in a top-line F1 car driving it beautifully. I mean, it must have been quite hard for some of the stuff. I mean, it, nowadays, if a driver fell off the Formula One ladder and went off whoring in Mexico, you'd be able to, you'd, everyone would have iPhones. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have a, you know, the, the footage would exist. I mean, you've had to um, use some interesting graphics to illustrate certain things. And there's very little Formula One footage of, I mean, I presume anything from 1982 you'd have had to pay a fortune for. Yeah, we, just, we just couldn't afford it. Yeah. We really tried, tried very hard, but there's no way we could um, afford any of it. Um, as the producer said, it was costing something like £30,000 uh, a minute. Uh, if it had cost 30, three grand, um, there would be an argument because I would have wanted it, but thirty grand you just can't on a budget of, it would be a fifth or sixth of our total budget. Um, but all the, I think Tommy got to Formula One, of course on his own talent, but by the help of his friends and family and friends who just went beyond what is normally done by friends to get someone to Formula One. They really believed in him. And same way we're making the film, um, that film could not be made only for the archive, personal archive of all his friends who had taped it on old VHSs, had Tommy Byrne marked out, and uh, there was all their own archive. Uh, cause that so it's just stuff that people have recorded off grandstand on Saturday yeah, afternoon, that kind of thing? That's that's all they had, yeah. 80 and 19 in Ireland, the Irish Equivalent Sports Stadium, grandstand here. That's how, that's how people recorded it, and um, that's all we had, because it had been wiped. You know, I'm sure somebody in a filing, in a, watching an Excel sheet had gone through it and said, we keep Senna, yeah, we'll keep Senna, Brundle, we'll keep Brundle, Tommy Byrne winning Formula 4. That all came from VHS tapes that his friends had gone and a couple of years ago, and they transferred them to DVD, and that's how, that's how, um, that's how we got all the footage. Um, there is not a single frame of Formula 1 in that uh, documentary. Um, I hope, I don't think it takes from the story at all. Um, I think Tommy got very, very, was there, very, very close. And I think, to go back to your earlier question, could Tommy change one thing? I think the things that got Tommy to Formula One, how could he change those things if he had, if he had been a different person? If he had been a different person who was, um, with the same talent, of course, but a different personality, he wouldn't have got a narcissist roar of, of Formula One. He wouldn't have persuaded his mum to claim she was having an extension built of a Formula Ford car. Well, that's a common Irish thing. That's oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's uh, right. There's always extensions being built on the house yeah. back in those days. We, we had a banking crisis there a while back. So, But I mean, despite all the difficulties of your humble upbringing, you, did, you still managed to get into motor racing. Now, when you compare what it was like 35 years ago with how it is now, I mean, in this day and age, a Tommy Byrne wouldn't have a cat in hell's head, would they, of getting anywhere near a racing car? Yes, I mean, it, it's... I mean, people come to me every day and they want, they want to know, you know, they've got dreams of being a race car driver. And No, if you go to America and you have, you know, $30,000, 
you might be able to win a prize to get you to the USF 2000 Championship, which then will cost $300,000. And if you win that, you can actually get into Indy Lights car, which costs a million and two. And if you win that, you can actually get to IndyCar. So there is a, a, a in ladder. In the States. In the yeah, States, yeah, there's yeah. a ladder. Over here, no. You have to be taken, picked by Red Bull or by or my, McLaren or by somebody to pay for you all the way up. And that's just the only way. You, you can't do it anymore. So, I mean, given given the way that things have, have become, I mean, you must you must harness a certain pride that you did as well as you did. Oh, I'm... Hey, the movie just happened. It's, that was 20 years... I mean, when I started working. When I give it up, when I decided it's time to get a job, that was 1994. And uh, things have been pretty good. He came along, and uh, this all started, and, you know, it seems like it just happened yesterday, but I really am, you know. I'm doing fine, and, and I'm still alive, even no matter what. If you watch that movie, you think it's like Angel's Ashes, and... Uh, Tommy's not around anymore. Um, that was 20 years ago, and it was very hard because Sean obviously was trying to bring up, you know, uh, you know the stuff that happened in the day. Because how can you make a documentary without that? I mean, sure, how how is this compared to other films and documentaries with which you've been involved? I presume it's, I presume I presume it's staggeringly unusual. There can be no comparison. <laughs> Has to be by far the best. <laughs> Sean can talk anything. I was giving a slightly different answer. I was agreeing with you to the point. Yeah, it's totally different to anything we've anything I've ever done. I probably it's this the most unique story in Irish sport because we've never had someone who got their fingertips to such uh, the high level in Formula One. Yes, there was a golden era in the eighties, but there was no one there who we um, now Eddie Irvine much later came came along. Um, but at that time. Um, Eddie, Eddie Irvine was a Protestant from Northern Ireland. <laughs> and, <laughs> and made it, and nearly won the World Championships. Come on. And he also had help from Camel and Marlborough along the way, which you didn't yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And just to go back, like we had, we had a, we had a good old struggle um, because I think it was maybe the last day we actually spoke about the stuff that Tommy didn't want to talk to, and, and I kind of I respect that as well. Like it's not an easy thing to have to go through, have to bring all those memories back for somebody. I have to bring it all up, bring all that kind of bad emotion. And, uh, you know, it's not a nice part of the job that you want to do. Um, I didn't enjoy it, Tommy. <laughs> but it, it's something that you have to do. And, um, and I think in life, particularly in this story, you have to measure someone, you measure someone's success by how far they've come. I think that's important rather than the, the height they've scaled. And I think um, that's not just being kind to Tommy, but I think that's a... That's a decent outlook on life. You say, you say, well, you said during the um, the documentary that whenever you were in a racing car, you felt you could beat anyone. I mean, were there any others out there that you rated at all? You can think about this one. No, I mean, if you asked me then, it would be no. If you asked me now... The politically correct answer would be, "Oh yeah, they're all really great drivers, and I was so happy to be involved with them." And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I was just you know happy to wake up in the morning and just get into a race car, and I just love myself. I love everybody around me. And but ask me thirty, forty years ago, I'd say no. And and realistically, if Ron Dennis asked me, "Tommy, do you think you're the best driver in the world?" What am I going to say? I mean, I think so. You know, maybe not. Maybe there's a couple of guys out there a little better. And if he asked Senna, are you the best driver in the world? Senna would just give him a big sneer and walk away. 
So it was just, you know, you have to believe. And you know what? I believe in myself so much. It really does make a difference when you're driving. I mean, you, if you believe so much, it's probably two or three times per second per lap. I think one of the most pressing questions is, did you ever give Ayrton his wheels back? First off, it wasn't Ayrton's, Ayrton's car. I brought, I, I used to buy the cars. For, I used to get the cars for the Brazilians down with John McCambridge down in London. So Ralph Furman, the Brazilians would come, I'd go down to London, get a car for them, and Ralph would sell it to them, and, uh, and they would drive it. And I never did pay for the car. And uh, all I was doing was just, my car was a better car than his car, because I had the, you know, I had the special wheels of mine. And all I, I was just too lazy, and I just switched them <laughs> over. We didn't know he was going to come back to claim the car he didn't even own in the first place. Um, so that's to set that story straight. He was really, really upset about those fucking wheels when I don't even think it was the wheels. I mean, did you did you have much interaction with it? I mean, apart from almost coming to blows in the Van Diemen factory, did you have much interaction? I mean, you were, you know, different levels at that time, but working from the same base. Did you have much interaction with him? Yes, we we lived together. We lived in this, we, we were in the same factory every day. We had breakfast in the same, the White Lodge every day. Um, we had dinners together with Ralph Furman and his wife, and we, we, were, we were together a lot. Uh, I picked his dad up from the airport and drove him back up to up to Snedderton. Didn't speak a word of English, and that was a long trip. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't really, you know, yes, he knew. He knew how good I was. I knew how good he was. And I think he was the one who was a little more jealous of me than I was of him. He was the one that got pissed off about me winning the championship, me winning the 44th festival, I think, in the car. I think that's where it all went wrong. No, we were together a lot. And he got drunk. He used to get drunk once a year in Macau or somewhere during the year, and he did get shit face one year in Macau. And somebody, I think somebody texted me last week, I don't know if it was Stuart or whatever, and said, Hey, did you, somebody just got in touch with me. Did you spike Ayrton's drinks in Macau? <laughs> and I said, No. But good story, because you can say what you want these days. And, um, but we're all sitting around the table, and everybody was shit-faced, including Ayurt, and he was banging some drinks and shitting them like that. All I know is they all left the table and left me to pay. And, of course, I had no money. Sean, from, from, the, from the screenings you've had so far of the documentary, what, what, what's, what has been the reception generally? Reception in Ireland has been, um, how come we've never heard of Tommy Byrne before? Um, it's only motor enthusiasts who actually remember from a certain area who actually remember him. Um, um, and in Ireland, very little is known of Tommy. Of course, his book went down a storm a couple of years ago, um, did very well. Um, I see the price of it has gone up in the last couple of days. Um, so anyone out there with the book, um, you're sitting on a small fortune. Oh, by the way, there's a new book coming up in early January. Now it belongs to me. The, I mean, it's funny you mention that because I remember Mark Hughes, who's one of the main talking heads in the movie, and wrote the book. Um, I remember while he was researching the book, he wrote a column in Autosport. It was all about the McLaren test. And he didn't name Tommy. And um, he described it all, and this fantastic driver who's, you know, disappeared off the face of the earth. Didn't name him. And I said to him, I said, everyone knows that's Tommy Byrne. And we were at the Grand Prix the following weekend, and in the press room, I was amazed by the number of people who came up to Mark and said, who the hell was that? And it all right, it's probably 20 years later. But, uh, you know, we, we live in this insular little, this tiny little bubble, and you think that everyone remembers everything. And I was amazed. And this was, I'm not going to name them, but there were high-profile writers and commentators, and they'd completely forgotten about him. And I was just absolutely gobsmacked be because of the heights he'd achieved while, while he was achieving them. You, you said, you reckon Brands 82 
might have been your greatest race. Do you, you stick with that? Uh, in the, form, in the, the Formula 3 the supporting British Grand Prix. That was my... That was my greatest race because I had all those troubles with the team and the switch cars and then I got a new car for that race and it was just yeah I loved the track and then um, yeah and obviously I, I won by a lot but my greatest race was when you get out of a Formula 1 car on a Saturday and not qualify and then you fly home uh, to England and jump into a Formula 3 car the next day which is like totally different um, it's, it's like bicycle wheels um, and the biggest race that I ever won obviously the, the one that I, I loved the most was the one where I beat uh, Dave Scott at, at, at Silverstone. Did you still speak to Dave Scott? <laughs> you mean after me calling him a four-eyes bastard? Uh, yeah, something like that. In the book, um, he actually he Facebooked me and said, "You know what, Tommy, you're right. I was driving bad that day." <laughs> that was twenty years later. Okay, that's enough for me. Are there um, any any questions at all from the audience? It's hard for me to see if there are any raised hands, but. There's a hand raised over there. What, oh, the, what the, drives you now? What drives you now? How are you now going to become the multimillionaire that you didn't become before? I'm not. <laughs> Money don't make you happy. No, I'm not going to be a multimillionaire. Now, now I'd be quite happy to uh, um, just to be able to get by and, and you know buy good things for my kids and make make sure they get along a little bit better. Um, but. I never really thought it was going to get a hundred million. I mean, I just said a hundred. That's what possibly could have happened. I would have been happy with a couple of million. Um, but what drives me now? I'm working at the Mid Ohio School. We have a business, uh, Diablo Drift to Drive in the Academy, and Diablo Drift to Drift Lift that Gary Anderson designed for me. Uh, and Dave Meehan, my my partner, uh, who was in the movie, who was Sam's mechanic. He's my partner in that. And um, I'm doing okay. Uh, everything's fine. And I do some driver coaching if I. If I like the team, or if I like the driver, if I get along with it, so um, that's what drives me now. Do you still drink a lot? No, I, I'm pretty good. A couple of shots, a couple of beers, I'm probably in bed. There's a hand illuminated there. Just yeah, go. On. A lot of footage of you leading from the front, and that's the best way to win. But in the words of Ayton, if you no longer go for a gap, are you no longer a racing driver? <laughs> Have you ever gone for a gap where you thought, that probably wasn't on, but it's me or him? Uh, do you know something? Did you read my book? I have actually got a copy, yeah. Okay. Um, I did. I went for a gap with John McCracken and Mundello in 1981. Uh, it was, I went back because I was leading the two championships in England. I went back to do a race in Mundello just for the fun of it. And John was doing pretty good, John McCracken. And, um, and he got pole. And he beat me off the line. Maybe I, I don't know who got pulled, but he beat me off the line. And he led me for 19 out of 20 laps. And I couldn't get by, and I, I was overheating. I was close to him, and it was getting really bad. And he was going to beat me. And uh, you can't have anybody beating you back in Ireland, you know, because then I wouldn't be the superstar anymore. John McCrack would be the superstar. So on the last lap, I just drove across the grass and just T-boned him and, um, and took him out. And uh, if I hadn't known... How, what a badass he was! I would never have done that. Um, I found out years later he was a tough guy because he came to America. He's just a little guy, but mean as shit. And um, and I got friendly with him. Six months later, he died in a car accident. But yes, early on in your career, and I know that I did the same thing to the Dave Coin. Uh, Dave, are you here? <laughs> I did have to give Dave Coin a break check once at Alton Park because he was. I looked in my mirror and he was just too close, and I could see his eyeballs and. I'm thinking, 
And he's just, I don't can't believe he's so close to me in that car because I didn't think his car was as good as, well, I don't know. And yeah, so I brake checked him way too early and I crashed and he crashed. And it turns out that Dave Coyne was a really, really good driver. So I sometimes you make mistakes. He was a big bloke as well. <laughs> yeah, no, he was a yeah, fast driver. But talking for going for gaps, I mean, you certainly went for gaps with Dave Scott at Silverstone that day, didn't you? Well, I wasn't. I mean, it was. I I always used to carry a lot of downforce because I just downforce time. I mean, I I go for the time lap times. He had a lot less downforce. He always did, and then um, I just couldn't. If he had left me alone and not put me on the grass, I could have drove past him the second lap and I was gone. But um, I was being careful. I mean, I had because he was. I was going to get crashed out, and um, so yes. I mean, I've I've gone for gaps, but not like Ayrton. Ayrton was, he did that as well. That was Martin Brandle at the time when Martin was beating him. And so he got really, really wigged out about the whole thing. And he had to show his, he had to show his stuff. And he had to do that to Martin Brandle to say, hey, I'll, t- I'll take it anywhere. That's the way he did it. Oh, there's a, uh, okay, Dan. Yeah, two, two things. First one is this film. I like the film. I thought I had a bit of a flat cloud over it. At the end of the day, Form 1 is probably the biggest worldwide sport in the world and Tommy got his ass in a prime spot in it and actually drove in Formula One and I think that is amazing so I think you know you did get there and none of us or very few of us have ever got there we all wanted to but we didn't get there no no you're right and and, and what I will say I did drive in two months time in, in the space of two months I drove the Theodore and I just one of the slowest cars on the track, uh, because of budgets. Now, obviously, I'm you know, now I'm older now, so I know what the, now I know what, what was wrong. I drove the slowest car on the track, and I dro- drove one of the fastest cars on the track, McLaren. And um, I got to drive the two two different ends of the spectrum, and I was four seconds a lap different. I could have qualified in the front row for the Grand Prix, and I'm going home with a Theodore. So I went through my life knowing that hey, I knew I was quick, and I proved it. And I got into a form. Just with that. Just a quick question. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a son who's six years old, and I'm lucky enough, like these guys, to have raced cars before. He's grown up you know, wanting to be a racing driver and what have you. Uh, this week there was a go-karting program about kids who are you know, 8 to 10 years old, dad spend 150 grand a year racing. Uh, you've got key cars, you've got uh, junior genetics and stuff like that. For me, I believe my son has got you know a chance more so because he's coming from a dad who's into racing, photos in the wall are of racing, he doesn't know the offside rule, he knows the racing line. Um, but I really believe that the young age uh, carters, they're more, you're beating the passion out of them almost, uh, instead of letting them discover it and enjoy it themselves. What age do you think uh, racing you know, uh, will make a difference to when you go? Well, I never did go karts. I started, I think, when I was like fifteen or sixteen, and you know, a little mini round of fields and stuff like that. And I, I drove for the first time in the Formula car when I was seventeen or eighteen. Um, but I did take my kids dirt go kart racing. All three of them. One was four, because he was going to be turning five, and Jeff Gordon won his first race when he was five. So um, I decided. Well, his name is Cullen Blaze Byrne. So I decided, hey, if he's a Let's get him out there anyhow. So he won his first race, and then I retired him. <laughs> and uh, before he was five, but just in case he had he, and then I had two other boys. The other one was super fast, and the other one was average, um, which is still good. And uh, they have to want to do it. 
If the four-year-old had to come to me after that and said, Dad, I just really, really want to, I really, really want to drive, then I would have done. He didn't, so that was the end of that. There's a question just in the middle there. Can be? Yeah, hi, yeah. Tommy. Um, there's been so much talk through the movie about what set you apart and what made you different. And one of the things they mentioned was the fact that you always worked as a mechanic on your own cars and then got into the car and drove it. Do you think that gave you an edge? Do you think that made, made a big difference? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I worked with... Uh, when I started, I was just telling somebody last night, because obviously all the stories come up. Um, I had no idea what I was doing the first couple of times I started working on the car. But I learned from Ralph Furman. Uh, that was the first major, you know, I drove for PRS, uh, but where I really started to learn about the car and the corner weights and measuring the tires and, and toes and, and the cambers and everything was from Ralph Furman. And then I went, then I went from Ralph Furman to Gary Anderson. And uh, then I just learned more and more. So I learned so much about the car. I could tell what the car, I could tell if the corner weights were off by five pounds just by driving through the turns and that was all because of those guys um yes i i knew a lot sometimes it later on in in these days uh, those engineers do not want the driver to know anything about it because they they do it all now by computer and uh, they're kind of telling you what to do they don't want uh, anybody that knows what they're talking about when it comes to car setup because that's their job it's quite hard to see in the shadows. Um, okay, yes, over on the left there. Well, I'd like to ask you, um, uh, uh, I've been blown away by your successes. I, I'm really I'm so proud for you. But were you, your career, when you went to McLaren, for an example, where you had your big break after winning Formula 3, winning Formula 4, having people like Murray Walker singing the praises, and David Kennedy singing the praises, and Eddie Jordan singing the praises, what didn't you have anybody around you and you used Stuart that actually prepared you like a mentor to get you in a frame of mind that when you're in front of these guys you could act in a slightly different way I wouldn't listen to them I mean you're right I needed somebody I certainly needed somebody there when I went in to see Ron Dennis for that for that uh, meeting for sure I don't know why Murray Taylor sent me on my own, but I don't know. I just, I just, I never really had anybody that I felt that were doing anything. For, I, I don't know. I, I had a lot of advice, but I never had a manager. For me, I always thought a manager was somebody that would get your drives and get your work. You know, not tell you what to do. But yeah, no, you're, you're dead for sure. If I just had to done a few things different and had somebody to, to help me out, yes. But I can only blame myself for that. Do you listen to people now? Not directors, no. <laughs> <laughs> I I know. I mean, I know you have to have an open mind, now for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Things have you know, things have changed a lot, and um, yeah, I did have a hard time listening to him. Okay, there's a question down here, I believe. Oh, it's Perry. Hi, right, sir. So we all thought you were great, but obviously we weren't going to tell you that. Um, but what I was interested in about Theodore. With just before Jackie Stewart came over to help you teach you how to drive, is that what, what, what did you get to the bottom of what that click was in the back of the Theodore? Well, I, I don't know if it, what it was. All I know was that I was 14 quickest in, in, a, in a practice session. And then when they took the fuel out and, and you know, uh, went for qualifying, I lost over a second a lap. 
And I, I thought that I heard something. I think an engine, not a clicking. I don't know what I heard. I thought it was something, but I knew it had to be something because I wasn't going to lose a second in two hours because uh, no good driver does. But when you know, I lost all this time and I ended up just barely qualifying, there, the Theodore answer, Julian Randall's again, um, his answer was that uh, actually it was Joe Ramirez that brought, that brought uh, Jackie over to tell me how to drive the car through the turn, you know. I mean, I, I've, you won five championships. Nobody's ever done it before. And, well, at that time it would have been four because I didn't win the Formula 3 championship. And then, and then you have, uh, you tried to, quali- I was just trying to, ha- I was just trying to qualify the car. They should have wanted to go faster too. And um, that's what happens. Uh, can you imagine if that, if somebody brought somebody over to Ayrton Senna and asked him, or even to you, Barry, and said, hey, you know, Tommy, you're going to need to go through the corner like this. What the? Come on, it's a it's a turn, and he's standing at one spot, and I lost. Uh, it. Thank God, guns weren't legal because I really, really would have done. So. He he did do a few more laps in F1 Perry than you did, if if if, if I can point that out. Harsh. <laughs> and I've lo- and I looked up to you. There's a question in the centre there. Tommy, do you have a? wonder where the speed came from. Is it possible that the very fact that you were cocky and sort of sense, you know, single-minded got you to the place that you ended up in Formula 1? Could you have got there had you been more considerate and <coughs> thought about it more, asked more questions of yourself? Would you have had more doubts? Well, the cockiness actually was... A lot of that was like, I was just joking around a lot. You know, people ask me, so do you think you're going to win today? Sure, I'm going to win, you know. I mean, I I most likely did believe I was going to win, but I mean, I just that was just my way of answering it. But what makes you different is I needed it so bad. I needed to win so bad, more than the other guy, because I, what was I going to go back to? Go back to nothing, go back to Dundalk. This is my chance. I mean, this was it. And that sure does make a difference to your speed. As I said, it's probably worth two or three tenths a lap to believe that you're better than the other. As I said, Dave Coyne. Dave Coyne's a fantastic driver. I thought he was a worker at the time. I just thought that he had a better car than me. That's why I brake tested him. So sometimes, you know, you know being ignorant it helps you a little bit. Um, but I just believe myself so much. But another thing... The mechanics and the engineers never, I never would let them tell me it was me. And that's a problem. And God knows how many good drivers slip through the cracks because uh, the engineers or the mechanics tell them, oh, you're just having a bad day today. That happens a lot. And that never, I would never stand for that. And uh, every time they said, oh, Tommy, what's wrong? Well, wait a minute. I knew my times. Everything was written down. I knew what happened. The next day I'm slower. Well, obviously something happened. It's not me. And I was always to fight them. Uh, but I've seen drivers, and they would talk to drivers into being, it's, it's your fault. So that was probably one of the things. Of course, when I got to Formula 1, I couldn't do that anymore. Any further questions over there? Another one down here? It's okay. Um, amazing. Uh, what you've done is amazing. And everything. But what was the first night out? Have <laughs> 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 you had the highs and lows that Schumacher Battle has not had? Uh, racing for you know, cartels and what have you. What was the one night was like, wow. I can remember. 
No, I mean, obviously, I seem to, Gerhard Berger seems to think that I had a great night the night he put me to bed. And then I beat him the next morning. The only problem is, I can't remember if he put me to bed or not. I told him I had to put him to bed that night. So um, we had to, we had, no. I was never, remember, I turned that down plenty of times. Um, I was never going to be that way. But uh, from, night, from everybody, every guy, from Nacho, from, Nacho, from all of them. But the 1983 season was a really good season. We actually had fun as drivers, all of us. And that year, I don't know if you were, I know Joe Sawyer was there. Uh, Sawyer, say what? Say what, Joe was there, starting off as a journalist. And um, after Formula One was over, then I let my hair down. I mean, right up until that, I wasn't, I wasn't too bad. And, but then we had, we had a lot of fun. Uh, that whole year, we had a great time. All the drivers were going out doing stuff together. Gerhard, me, but we're all hiding in the disco. Gerhard would be over there and I'd be over there. And then uh, Piero was somewhere else and Martini was somewhere. We were like, we're still trying to be good. And then and, you know, Gerhard goes off on to make you know, millions of dollars racing. So it's all a load of bullshit about it. I didn't make it because of the partying. I was going to ask you, 1983, Gary Anderson tells a story, I think it's from 83. I think it was a race at Paul Rickard where uh, practice was fogged off. And you and Gary repaired to a bar somewhere because that seemed like a better option. And while you're sitting there on your third or fourth beer, you then hear the sound of Formula 3 cars firing up, at which point you have to rush off. And, and I think, you, I can't remember if you were second, your first or second fastest. But, I mean, clearly, didn't, nothing seemed to have made too much difference, certainly at that uh, level. Obviously, another story about Tommy Byrne, wrong. Ah. We went, yes, it was Randolph. It was worse. Yeah, it was, it was, again, that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> I got better stories than that. Yes, it was Randolph. And it was me and Gary and all the mechanics went to the little cafe down the road because we weren't supposed to be racing for the, for the rest of the day because it wasn't going to come back again. It looked like it. And that's what we were told, kind of. So we went to the a little a French cafe and I started, it, me and Gary started to teach them how to make Irish coffees. So we made Irish coffees and drank lots of Irish coffees. And then we got the word that, hey, the races, the qualifying or, or practice is back on. So we all went back there and Gary forgets what he said at the time. But um, yes, I drove the car, obviously, with probably at least six or seven or ten Irish coffees. And, uh, and I was fine. In the car, I was fine. And I had to qualify for Monaco. And I think I started last and I finished sixth to get to the to, to get the qualify. And all Gary said was he didn't know how I could drive the car because he couldn't see me coming back when he was holding <laughs> it, when he was holding the pit board. So that's that's the story I remember. Uh, Brian. More an observation than anything else. And that is that we've heard from two drivers tonight. Perry here as well. But from a personal point of view. I got far more enjoyment out of those two guys at the early levels in their career than I do from anybody these days. And, uh, thank you, Brian Jones. Uh, just um, Brian Jones has always been there for, I mean, you, you remember me. I went over there in 1977, I think, for the first time uh, for the Formula Ford Festival. It's 76. I did the festival more than anybody knows. Um, and I was there, and you watch. You used to watch the young drivers. Do you remember Thierry Bootsen went there and came from came from Europe and went really, really fast? And nobody ever came from anywhere to be up the front at the festival. And Thierry Bootsen did that. That's why the day he tested McLaren, I was going, if he thinks the car is not handling good, then I got a problem because that guy's good. Yeah. 
you know. But yeah, but Brandon's he's been a huge supporter of all. Yeah. Ladies and gents, just had a signal over from the charming lady on the left that we've actually got to wrap things up now because they need the theatre for something else. So I'm very sorry. But can we have a round of applause, please, for Sean and Tommy?